Go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11. A number of years ago, Keith Miller and Bruce Larson wrote a book called The Edge of Adventure, and uh, included in that book uh, was the following letter. It was found in a baking powder can wired to the handle of an old pump uh, at a kind of desert, remote desert, sta- desert station in uh, Amagardo, I think it is, desert in Nevada. Here's what the letter said. It's pretty interesting. The, wa- the pump is all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer into it, and it ought to last five years, but the washer dries out, and the pump has got to be primed. Now, under the white rock, I buried a bottle of water out of the sun, cork end up. There's enough water in it to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. So pour about one-fourth of the bottle into the pump or into the well and let her soak to wet the leather. Then pour the rest medium fast and pump like crazy and you'll get water. The well has never run dry. Have faith. And then he says, when you get watered up, fill the bottle and put it back like you found it for the next feller. Signed, Desert Pete. P.S. Don't go drinking the water first. Prime the pump and you'll get all you can hold. Now that, if you show up there at that remote outpost in the middle of the Nevada desert in 1930-something, the temptation is going to be to drink the water and not prime the pump. It takes, it's easy to drink the water, but it takes faith to prime the pump. Now that's just a little illustration of, of how you know, sometimes life calls on us to live by faith. Now, all of us live by faith. All of us uh, exhibit faith. All of us act on faith. Uh, when you got up this morning, hopefully you got up and, and you brushed your teeth. I'm sure most of us did. At least I hope you did. Well, what you did, and I don't know how it works with you, either you put the brush under and got it wet or you put the toothpaste on and then put the brush under and got it wet. But chances are, either way, you put the brush under there and got it wet because you believe that the water in that faucet is healthy and it's good. And that's faith. Because what I know is if you'd have got up this morning in Mexico or if you would have got up this morning in some obscure hotel in India because I've been there or if you'd have got up in some uh, remote place in some third world country... Chances are you wouldn't have turned on the faucet and shoved your toothbrush under there. You'd have took a bottle of water that you took with you, if you could, from the States, and you'd have opened it up and you'd have poured it on your toothbrush. Why? Because you don't really believe the water in that third world country is going to be safe. And you're probably right, depending on where you are. It, it, but, but what we do is we act on faith. I mean, this afternoon, when we get done here, many of you, you're going to go to an eating establishment somewhere, and you're going to order the, the, the combo fajitas or, or whatnot, and you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to dig into that chicken, and you're going to honestly believe that that chicken is really chicken. And you don't know. You, you think you know, but you have faith. Or, or you're going to believe that that pork tamale is really pork and not, you know, somebody's... Well, anyway, we won't go there. But, but you understand what I'm saying? See, we, see, we act on faith. Uh, maybe like me, you got up this morning and you opened a, a medication bottle and you took out some medicine. And you popped it in your mouth because you got high blood pressure or you got some other condition. And you believe that what's in that bottle is what they claim it to be. See, that's faith. See, all of us... In some way, shape, or form, 
all of us live, I mean, we have to have an element of faith. We have to have an element of trust. That's got to be true in our life. It's got to be true to function. Even the atheist, even the atheist has faith. His or her faith is in what he has gleaned from the accumulation of knowledge or observation of the world around him. In fact, he or she believes that God does not exist in spite of the preponderance of evidence all around us. Choosing to believe, rather, that everything that we see and everything that we observe in the heavens just showed up by chance. But, but nevertheless, he has faith in the knowledge that he has that God doesn't exist. And so the question I want to uh, wrap our minds around this morning is when it, comes to, when it comes to the spiritual realm, what kind of faith do you have? And maybe even another question, and, and before we get to the what kind of faith, is, is in, in whom... Is your faith directed? When we drink the water, we're trusting the water authority. When, when we eat the chicken, we're, we're believing that, it, that the people in the back cook chicken and not something else. When, 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 we take a, when we take Losartan for high blood pressure, we're trusting that the, uh, that the drugstore in the pharmacist put in what they said they put in. I mean, that's faith. To the atheist, his faith is, the object of his faith is his own knowledge. His own belief system. And, but when it, comes to, when it comes to spiritual faith, who is the object of your faith? Who is it that you're trusting in? Is it, is it a, uh, is it a, first of all, is it a biblical faith? Is your faith biblical? That's a fair question. But, I, but that's not the only question. In fact, that's probably not the most significant question. Uh, there, there's two others that really you, you, you got to ask. If you have a biblical faith, you got to ask two questions. Is it intellectual or is it experiential? Because see, I dare say that for some of you, today your faith is biblical, but it's intellectual. You believe God is God. In fact, you believe Jesus is the Son of God. It's intellectual. In fact, I had, I had, uh, I had a conversation with a, with a young man this week that, uh, that actually believes that, that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. And, and he is, I mean, he is diametrically opposite to me in terms of what he believes. See, it's possible to believe intellectually and have no impact on your life. Why do you think, listen, why do you think almost without exception when you read the Gospels, when Jesus confronted someone demon-possessed, almost without exception, what did the demon do? They recognized Jesus. And then they asked, sometimes they even asked Jesus' permission. Remember when, the, when he sent him into the pigs? See, intellectually, Intellectually, the demons know that Jesus is real. That's why James said, James, I think it's 2.19, you believe in one God, you do well. The demons believe and they tremble, they shudder. But, but it's intellectual. And so the question is, is, is your biblical faith, is it intellectual or, or is it what I will call experiential? And what I mean by that is, when, when I read the scriptures, when people met Jesus, when their faith in Jesus became real, they had an experience, and it was a life-changing experience. And so what you need to wrestle with, what I need to wrestle with, what all of us need to decide is, is the faith we have, is it simply intellectual, or has it, is it experiential? Has it made a change in our life? And, and that's really, I think, a fair question. Uh, as we try to wrap our mind around this idea, someone, I think it was Alistair Begg, who noted that there's no valid Christian experience without faith. The reason it's so important is there's no valid Christian experience without faith. Uh, listen to 
Listen to what Paul writes for us back over in the book of Galatians chapter 2. You'll probably recognize this verse. Listen to what it says of Paul. He says, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the, not, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, he says, and gave himself up for me. What a... What a remarkable statement that Paul made there. Is, is that the life you're living today? Is the life you are living in the flesh a life of faith in the Son of God? Because genuine biblical faith is an experiential faith. Alistair Begg said it this way. He said, he said, faith begins with a decisive act. It begins uh, with a decisive act. But it, but it's, it, it really, it, it maintains an attitude over time. And so it has a beginning point, but, but it moves forward. And so what we're going to do beginning today, and for the next few weeks, we're going to do a series called Faith in Focus. And what I hope to do out of Hebrews chapter 11 is help you and me bring our faith into focus where we can look and say, okay, yes, there's been a decisive act of faith. There's been a, 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 you know, an event where I come to Christ, but it has resulted in an ongoing attitude of Jesus changing my life. And so as we turn to Hebrews chapter 11, what we're going to find is, is what I believe is the greatest montage of, of faith in all the Scripture. It's, a, it's the greatest accumulation of pictures or portraits of faith. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to jump in. Uh, we're really not going to get to the pictures, but we're going to jump in and try to, try to bring our faith, if you will, into focus, and then we'll kind of flesh that out uh, over the next couple of weeks. So look down in your Bibles there, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are biblical. Shall we pray together? Father, uh, in these next moments, I pray that you would, uh, God, you speak uh, out of your word into our heart and out of your word into our life. And Lord, that we would examine that question. You know, is my faith experiential? Is it, is it simply intellectual? Or is it a life-changing, a vibrant, real faith that began with a decisive act uh, but continues with this, this sustained attitude of believing God. And so God, uh, search our hearts. Lord, I, I know there's some men, some women, perhaps a young person, uh, some students here today that th their faith is biblical and it's intellectual. But God, is not experiential. And may the day be the day to where life change truly happens. And so come and meet with us, speak into our life, Father, and we'll be careful to give you the glory and honor for all that you do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we concluded chapter 10 two weeks ago and uh, with a message entitled, Is It Real? The idea being, is your faith real? Look up in verse 39 of chapter 10. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, but we are not of those who shrink back. In other words, we, we are not of those who, who, who 
who fail to believe or who fail to endure and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, what kind of faith is it? What kind of faith does it take to preserve a man's soul? What is it that it takes to preserve a woman's soul? Well, that's what chapter 11 is about. And, and then he jumps in and he writes or makes that statement that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. And so remember, everyone has, all of us have faith. Now, not all of us have spiritual faith. And certainly not all of us have biblical faith, but we all live by faith. But if, but if you're going to live by biblical faith, listen, the world is going to be quick to question. The world may be quick, uh, they may even be quick to mock you. Uh, you may sit at the lunch table in school with students who, who uh, you know, really throw down on faith and, and throw down on the belief in God. And, uh, you know, and if you go to the university, uh, and if you don't yet, you will soon. You, man, you're going to come under attack because people are going to question, you know, whether, uh, and they're, they're going to really make fun of the fact that we would believe uh, somebody even called him what, what they might call you know, a sky fairy or a sky daddy. How do you believe in that? And uh, and, and they're going to question that. Now, as I told the early service they didn't really appreciate this, but that same person will, will laugh at the fact that we uh, that we believe in a God that designed the universe, and then they'll pull up the McDonald's and order a hamburger at the drive-thru. I'm just thinking you 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 have that kind of faith, and you get up to the window, and the 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 uh, the health certificate says 78 percent uh, approval rating. Can I just give you a, a hint here? If it's under 80, that's faith. <laughs> if you go to McDonald's, it's probably faith. I would just, just say. So, but, but, but here's what I'm saying. Listen, if we're going to get spiritual for a minute, we need to get on past it, and I want to get biblical. Let me just give you three thoughts uh, right out of our text. First of all, what the writer does, he gives us a description of faith, not really a definition because uh, there's so much more to faith, and we can't unpack all that. But listen to the description. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, Hebrews 11.1 1 is not a definition of faith, but a description of what faith does and how it works. True Bible faith is not blind optimism or manufactured hopes of feeling. Neither is it an intellectual assent to a doctrine. It is certainly not believing in spite of evidence. That would be superstition. Listen to this. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's Word in spite of circumstances and in spite of consequences. Let me say that again. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's Word in spite of circumstances and consequences. Now look down in your Bibles at verse 1. The phrase, assurance of things hoped for, that word assurance really means to stand up under or to support. A couple of analogies might help. Uh, it, it, Think of it this way. Faith is to a Christian as what a foundation is to a house. It's the, it's the, the part on which everything else is built. Uh, another way to look at that or another way to say that is faith is to our hopes what a title deed is to a piece of property. The deed guarantees ownership of the property in Genuine faith guarantees 
the certainty of hope or the inheritance, if you will, of hope. And let me tell you, so, so when we say hope, what are we talking about? Well, in our culture, we think of hope as, you know, I hope it stops raining or, or I hope, you know, my team, you know, we think of hope as, as uncertainty, but we just kind of hope it happens. Biblical hope is not like that. Biblical hope is what we would call a certainty. And so there's really two, there's at least two types of biblical hope. First of all, we, we would talk about the, the assurance of, of what I would call a living hope. Turn to your right, go over past the book of James, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what uh, Peter the Apostle writes. He says, verse 3, chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. Now listen to this. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, now watch this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, so, so first of all, we have the certainty, the title deed to a living hope. We have the title deed, if you will. If you have genuine faith, it's the assurance that you have the deed to an inheritance that will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. It is kept in heaven for you. And so that is the living hope. But secondly, so the living hope is, first of all, it's an inheritance. But secondly, go back over the other side of Hebrews to Titus chapter 2. I want to talk about, uh, let's begin. We're going to pick up in the middle. It doesn't make real sense, but just kind of stay with me. Titus 2, we'll begin. And if I can get there, we're going to begin in verse 13. Titus 2, I promise we're going to get there. 2.13, here's what it says. It says, waiting for our blessed hope. Now, what is the blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so, so the living hope is about an inheritance. The blessed hope is about an appearance. And so what the writer is saying is that when you have biblical faith, you can be certain that you've got an inheritance coming and you can be certain that there is an appearance coming. Jesus is going to come and he's going to redeem us and he's going to, he's going to bring our salvation to, real, to, to, to be real. And so what the writer is saying is the, the first part, the first description of faith is you can be sure, you can be certain. That what God has promised, what He's promised, that's going to happen. But that's only half of the description. Look, if you will, back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Look at the second half. Not only is it the assurance of things hoped for, it is the conviction of things not seen. It is the conviction. In fact, it is the certainty that what I can't see is really going to happen. It's really true. Uh, I read this this week. Uh, the African impala, uh, which is, you know, I think it's a glorified deer, but anyway, that's why it's an African impala. But, but anyway, what they tell us is, is that that rascal can jump 10 feet straight up in the air, 10 feet. And they say it can jump as much as 30 feet. So, so really about the fifth, I mean, it can jump from here to about the fourth or fifth pew back. Imagine that. It can jump 10 feet high. 30 feet long. But did you know, did you know that marvelous animal, that, that unique animal of God's creation? What they tell us is they can put it in a zoo with a fence three feet high and it will not jump out. Now, why is that? I mean, it jumped 10 feet. It could jump from me to you, to most of you. 
But it won't jump a three-foot fence. Do you know why? If the impala cannot see where its feet are going to land, it will not jump. So if it can't see where it's going or where it's landing, it's, it's not jumping out in faith. How many of us are like that? When it comes to the things of God, if we can't see where He's taking us, we're not willing to step out on faith. Isn't, isn't that true? Isn't that true? We're, we're just, you know, we just, and I'm like this, and I think many of us are like this, we just, you know, God will do it, but we just kind of, we just need to know how this thing's going to turn out. But faith, experiential biblical faith, is a conviction about things we cannot see. Now, one of the great examples of that is Noah. We, he's introduced to us down in verse 7. We'll talk about him maybe next week or at least in, in the weeks to come. I'm not even sure the writer of Hebrews does justice to Noah. But think about this. God comes to Noah and says, Noah, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to flood the earth. It's going to rain. I'm going to flood the earth. And, and, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a boat. And, uh, and build this big boat, and this is what's going to happen. Now, I want you to think about this. Uh, God comes to Noah, now, right? He, he says, Noah, it's going to rain. And, and Noah goes, what is rain? Did you know that it had never rained a drop? There had never been a rainstorm? What, what we all experienced, uh, what was it, Friday night? You know, Noah had never experienced that. Never seen it. Chances are he had never seen an ocean. And yet God comes and says, no, I want you to build a boat. Now, we're not talking about a canoe. He, put, he, he went out on his back deck and he started building a canoe where nobody was watching. We're talking about a ship. We're talking about a monstrosity. I mean, when you think about the Titanic, it was, I mean, it was comparable. And so Noah never seen any rain, never, probably never seen an ocean, And yet for 120 years, he has such a conviction in something he's never seen that he builds this boat. And And that's what the writer's talking about. Faith. Faith is the conviction of what we cannot see. Remember remember the story of Thomas, Jesus, in the end of John's Gospel, chapter 20, Jesus kind of tells the story. They're all in the upper room and Jesus comes and he materializes to them and he shows himself to them and they get all excited. And, and, and But Thomas wasn't there. I guess he was at McDonald's. But anyway, so Thomas was out getting a hamburger and, and so when he comes back, they said, Thomas, you're not going to believe this. Jesus came and he appeared to us. Man, he's alive. He's resurrected. Thomas said, well, I don't believe that. Hey, I'll tell you what, if I don't put my finger in the nail holes, if I can't can't put my hand in the side, I'm not going to believe that stuff. And so the scripture says eight days later, Jesus comes back. He says, Tom, check this out. Tom, how how about this? And Thomas goes, oh, my Lord and my God. And you know what Jesus said? He said, blessed are you to believe, but how blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. See, what God is interested in when it comes to this idea of faith, God's not interested in us believing what we can see. That's not faith. I mean, if somebody walks up behind you and, and starts talking to you, you, that's not faith. You just can't see them. 
But you can hear them. You know they're there. Faith is, is being convicted about something that, that we can't see. And we're not sure it's there, but we've just decided that we're, we're going to believe it because God said it. Faith. Assurance of what we hope for. The conviction of what we see. That's our description. But secondly, I want us to spend just a moment talking about not only the description of faith, but look at the demonstration of faith. Look down there in verse 2. He says, For by it, this faith that we're talking about, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things seen, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. In other words, they got credit for believing the impossible and for seeing the invisible. And that's really what chapter 11 is about. Chapter 11 is about people who would take God at His Word even when they couldn't see the evidence. Now, we talked about Noah, and that was easy. I mean, we talked about him. Yeah, that was easy. It never rained. Built a boat for 120 years. Well, then the next guy up, and we'll talk about him for a minute, was, was Abraham. Or Abraham. Remember, God comes to, to Abraham and says, says, Abe, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Get your wife. Get your stuff. Put it in a U-Haul. Get in your car. Head west, maybe north, northwest. Just you head out, and I'll tell you where you're going. Can you imagine that? God comes to you and says, hey, pack your stuff. Get in the car. Head out. I'll tell you later where you're going. Do you know what we do? God comes to us and says, here's what I want you to do. Here's where I want you to go. Here's where you're going to be. I'm not going to do that. And yet Abe, Abe was, he was willing to go, even, even knowing, not knowing where he was going. Now, that may seem foreign to you. My dad was, let me tell you this quick story. My dad was in the livestock hauling business. We used to ship cattle, particularly back in the 70s, South Florida to, to Texas Panhandle, Oklahoma, you know, that whole area out there. Well, uh, there was a place in South Florida, Zoffo Springs, Dara Cattle Company, and they would, what they would do is they'd buy cattle at all the auction barns and they would bring them in and Thursday or Friday they'd have all these cattle gathered up and their barns would be full and, and they would take orders. But, but a lot of times what would happen is you'd go down there and load your truck and, and you'd get loaded and you'd get up to the office and say, where am I going? And they would say, well, we don't really know where you're going. And they would say to our driver, you just head out. And call us later. And so it was about three and a half hours. So they'd get up to Williston, my hometown, and you know, they, we'd refuel, and they would get ready on the road. And my dad would call them up and he'd go, "Well, you know, sometimes they, they might say, well, you know, we're really not sure where they're going yet.' So you head on. Then they'd go to Mississippi. So sixteen, eighteen hours later, they call in and say, "Well, I don't know where you're going." So then they go to Louisiana. And sometimes they might even get as far as Texas. They don't even know where they're going. They're just following directions. That's what Abraham did. He had no idea where he was going. He just believed that the one who sent him was trustworthy. And so he packed up his wife and his stuff and he got in a U-Haul and off they went. Or U-Camel is probably what it was, but anyway, that's what he did. 
It, it, that's what faith, listen, all of these guys, listen, they were commended. I mean, there was, there was Noah, and there was Abraham, and there was Jacob, and there was Isaac, and there was Joseph, and Moses, and David, and, and Rahab. And there's just this laundry list of people that they did all this stuff, and they went to all these places. And then the writer says, man, we don't have time to tell you about Barak and Samson and all of these guys. But man, listen, they shut the mouths of lions. They received, received back their kids from the dead. Man, it was awesome. And we're like, man, I I would do that. But look at verse 35. Look with me, if you will, at verse 35. So think about all the things that they were done. You know, they quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. But without without even a conjunction, the writer says, some were tortured. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated of whom the world was not worthy. Hey, we, hey there's not many of us who wouldn't sign up to do what Noah did. If we knew, if we, knew we were going to get what Abraham got, we'd sign up. If we, if we knew we were going to kill the giant, we, we'd side up like David did. But the writer says, listen, not, not everybody that lives by faith has a great blessing. Not everybody that lives by faith has, has a great result. Some of you, he says, or some of them who live by faith endure great hardship. I mean, I mean, I... I I'd sign up to be a father of many nations, but I'm not lining up to get sawn in two, right? I mean, you know, I, I, I would like to be second in Egypt like Joseph. Not sure I want to pay the price he did, but I'm not sign- I don't really want to get stoned. But the writer says, listen, they were commended for their faith, good or bad. Think about this. Here's, I thought about this this morning. For, for those guys like Noah and Abraham and, uh, you know, and David and Moses, man, for them, they were, they were living out the conviction of things they couldn't see. And they were getting the blessings. But the guy that got sawn in half, the guy that got stoned, the guy that had to live in the cave, that lived a life of destitution, he, he wasn't living on the conviction of what he couldn't see. He was living on the assurance of what he hoped for. In spite of this, I'm going to stand strong. If you read church history, you'll read about, you read about the reformers and well, even the guys before. You'll read about men and women that stood on the scriptures and they stood on the word of God and they stood on salvation by grace through faith. And even the church would torture them. And you'd be surprised how many men were burned at the stake because they believed in Jesus. And they weren't willing to compromise no matter what. 
So what we have is a demonstration of faith. We have a description of faith. The assurance of what we hope for, the conviction of what we do not see. And then we have real quickly, verse 3. I'm going to call this the declaration of faith. I believe this is, rather than being a portrait, is just kind of the, uh, just trying to connect this whole idea and really lays the groundwork. Listen to verse 3, and then I want to say a few comments about it. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, This is an intriguing first verse because I believe it it literally explains the scientific dilemma uh, that we have in our world today. There's a great deal of discussion today about evolution versus creation, about Natural scientific origin versus uh, intelligent design. There, there's a plethora of books on either side of the equation, uh, a multitude of, ba- of debates that you can see on YouTube and, and other places, podcasts that you can listen to. But I believe this verse is, is the why behind the what. In apologetic circles, there are great thinkers defending the biblical worldview and creation and intelligent design and, 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 and well, we should. In fact, in an attempt to win over those who, who fall on the other side of the fence. There are also great thinkers on the evolutionary side defending scientific naturalism and evolution. In fact, I started reading a book this week by Stephen Meyer called Darwin's Doubt. Uh, he argues eloquently and intellectually that the Cambrian explosion... Uh, and the explosion of information makes a great case, uh, really an insurmountable case, he thinks, uh, for intelligent design. If, in reading that book, I, I think he's the smartest guy I've ever read. I mean, he is it's just incredible. Uh, if you don't believe me, just go online to Amazon, look up Darwin's Doubt. You don't have to buy the book. Just, just read some of the, you know, look inside. I mean, it's just it's incredible. And so it kind of motivated me, you know, a little bit. But, he, but here's the thing. Uh, what, what 11.3 tells us is that by faith, we understand the worlds and the universe were framed by the, and created by the Word of God so that what is seen is not visible. Now, there is incredible evidence for intelligent design and creation, but it's a matter of faith. In the scientific realm, in the realm of of, of the world we live in, in culture and education, in the university, there's no room in science, in today's culture, for intelligent design. The only room they have is for a natural explanation of how the world exists. And so there's this conflict. And so you've got people of faith that believe what the Scripture says, that by faith we know God spoke the world into existence, but in the, in the scientific realm, that's not an option. That is not an answer. Even if they can't find the answer. And, and listen, let me just say this. Science doesn't have the capacity to explain the origin of the universe, yet naturalism and neo-Darwinian theory rules the day. And it will continue to rule the day. Our kids are going to be taught that in school. Our kids are going to be taught that in the university. And it's, it's not going to change. It's probably never going to change. And the reason is science doesn't have room for, for faith. And yet at the same time, science doesn't have the capacity to really understand the origin of the universe. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, science by definition, and Ryan, I hope I'm right on this, but science by definition is limited to the observable, measurable, 
and repeatable. If you're going to prove something as a scientific fact, it's got to be observable, measurable, and repeatable. Anybody remember Sir Isaac Newton? Anybody remember learning about him? He's the guy... Uh, he's the guy with the apples, right? He's, he's got it figured out that if, li- listen, when the apple comes off the branch, what happens? It drops. Well, guess what he figured out? He figured out that, that uh, everything drops. Everything. And so it's observable. And, he, and what he figured out is every time you drop it, same thing happens. And not only was it observable, it was measurable. They could measure it. And because they're able to measure, they now have the ability. I mean, they can predict all this thing based on that simple one, one law of gravity. And, and not only was it observable and measurable, but it was repeatable. And so we could talk about mathematical equations. We could talk about the, you know, how you figure the area of a circle. You know, uh, my wife's going to get on to me, but it's pi time. Pi day's coming up. All right, we were ahead pi day, right? So anyway, 3.14 times their radius or whatever. And so we got all these rules that we've, we've been able to observe them, we've been able to measure them, and we've been able to repeat them so we know they're true. Now, when it, you say, well, why can't you do that with the universe? Here's why. Number one, you can't go back and observe the origin of the universe. Now, they've tried, but you can't really observe it. Number two, you can't really measure it. Now, I know they've measured the universe, but we're at about 13.8 billion light years, the last thing I read, and yet every few years they discover another hole somewhere out there. And they go, oh, maybe we've not. So they're me- it's measured, but, but it, keeps, it keeps going. But, but, even, but even you say, oh, but... We can observe it. Oh, we can measure it. Here's the the kicker. You can't repeat it. And so if it's going to be proven scientifically, it's it's got to be observable, measurable, and repeatable. And you can't repeat the origin of the universe. So, So science really, I mean, they can theorize how it came into being. But they cannot prove it because it's not repeatable. And so... They tell us that we live in a universe that uh, that started about four, I think, maybe four billion years ago. I think's the, the rule of thumb, and and uh, it, it, it's it's amazing, you know, that four billion years ago there was something, and we don't know where, what that something was. We don't even know what this stuff that was four billion years ago. But anyway, four billion years ago, this stuff was here, came from somewhere. But they just believe that this stuff was just kind of hanging around for a couple billion years and moving around, and and somehow after about three billion years, six or seven hundred million years ago, that stuff that was moving around, it became the earth as we know it and the universe as we know it. And then somehow after about 3.3 billion years, some of it rubbed together just right. And it rubbed together just right and a single-celled amoeba came to life. Just amazing. And then uh, a few hundred years later, or a few hundred million years later, that little amoeba, it kept rubbing together over all these years and dancing around, and it became a multi-celled creature. And then, you know, and this thing just kind of transpired, and it kept going. And, and after about, five, you know, another 500 million years or 550 million years or so, all of a sudden, we have man. And so that's their, that's the best they got. That, I mean, just think about it. I mean, think about it. If I brought up a Scrabble game and said, okay, we're going to shake this box of Scrabble and dump it out, we're going to keep shaking it, and eventually, eventually, 
That box of Scrabble is going to turn into the Ten Commandments. You think, you're an idiot. Never happened. And, and yet, the, some of the greatest minds in, in, in the world tell us, oh, all this stuff just danced around and rubbed around, and eventually, eventually, it got together, and this is what happened. But when I, one of the privileges as a pastor I get is, is, is oftentimes I get, to, I get to see these newborn babies and I get to sometimes hold these babies and, and, and pray over these babies. And if you've ever held a baby, it's just the most incredible thing in the world to hold in your hands this six or seven pound uh, miracle that with time and teaching and nourishment is going to grow up to be a human being. And what a unique and incredible human being. King David wrote in Psalm 139, 14, he said, I am, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, Alistair Begg shared, the, I'll just share a couple quick things about, about the uniqueness of the human body. And I just, this was so interesting to me, I will throw it out with you. He says, he says a, a grand piano has 240 strings, impossible to tune, and yet the human ear has 24,000 tiny strings that enable you to hear. And, and with rare exception, it stays in tune all the time. And he talked about, he went on to talk about how the, some of the great cameras we have that give us, deliver this high HD and all, they have like 60,000 photoelectric components. The human eye has 137,000 of those components and we can see you know, now when you're young, you can see a lot better than you can when you get a little older. But you get the miles, you don't see as well. But, but, but just think about the colors. Just think about all the stuff that we can see. And the stuff just moved around enough and it happened, right? And he goes on to talk about the, the, uh, a neuron in the human brain has a couple hundred uh, communication pathways. I think, I think they're synapses. I'm, I'm not real sure. But, but I did a little reading on the synapses. Uh, last night, and the average neuron has uh, a thousand to as many as ten thousand synapses. That be, a synapse being that point where where uh, information is transmitted from one to the other. So a neuron can have as many as a as a thousand of these, or up to ten thousand of these. Now people say, "Ah, oh, a computer can do that," which is true. I mean, that's, what, that, that's kind of how computers work, I guess, a little bit. It's a transfer of information. But think about this. The average human brain has 100 billion neurons. 100 billion. With 1,000 or more of these little synapses. And it, and it can communicate all kinds of information. And that's why King David said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so, listen, the the scripture, the writer here of Hebrews says, listen, it's by faith that we understand that the universe and everything in it, that the ages, time, and all was created by the Word of God. Now, here's what's interesting. Often we, we see the term Word of God, we think about the Logos, or we think about Jesus who was, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You know, uh, John chapter 1, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's not the Word here. You know what the Word here is? Spoke. 
He says, by faith we understand that the universe and everything in it was framed by the spoken word of God. And so that's the writer's declaration of faith. I wish I had more time. We could go on and on. But let me just ask the question, what does all this mean for you and me? Well, I'll begin with a definition from Alistair Begg. Faith begins with a decisive act and continues with a sustained attitude. And so let me ask you this morning. Let, let's, you know, I know we've, I've given you a lot of information. You might be thinking, so practically, what does this mean? Well, let me just give you a couple practical thoughts and we'll be done. Has there been a decisive act where your intellectual faith has moved to your heart and has become a faith of experience? Has there been a decisive point in your life where Jesus has changed you from the inside out? That's what we're talking about here. Life change. Has there been a decisive act? And for many of you, the answer would be yes. For some of you, you're not sure. For some of you, you'd say no. Well, if your answer is not sure or no, my heart's desire is that today you would say yes. I, I want to I act on my faith. But what I want to say to many of us is if you've crossed over that line of faith, how are you living that out? See, Paul said the, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. How are you living that out? The writer of Hebrews, the end of chapter 9, talks about how Jesus is going to come again. And he's going to come the second time apart from sin unto salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you, are you living your life in eager anticipation that Jesus is coming? Are you living out your life in eager anticipation? Now, let me help you understand that. We've got to move quickly, but let me just help you understand that. If somebody's coming to your house to visit today, and, and there's you know, kind of a special guest or honorable guest, uh, what are you going to do? You're going to have your husband vacuum, or your kids are going to vacuum, or somebody's going to clean the sink, and somebody's going to, you're going to have the house straightened up, right? But why? Because you're expecting a guest. If you're going to the dentist on Thursday to get your teeth clean, here's what I know you're going to, you're going to floss your teeth at least Wednesday. Now you probably not flossed them for the last six months, or at least for five, maybe a couple times when you get so But, but if you know, if you know you're going to the dentist, what are you going to do? You're going to get ready, right? Because even, and, and here, I just need to tell you this, if you don't floss for five months, they know. They can tell, oh, they're really dirty this time, you know, scraping a lot of stuff. Are you flossing regular? They, they know. You just, we just do it to get the obstacles out of the way just so we can get through it, right? But, but if we know it's coming, we prepare. Here's the thing. You don't, Jesus is coming a second time. And he's coming for those who are eagerly expecting him. And you don't know, and I don't know, we don't know when that's going to be. But people of faith are living it out, expecting Him to come today. And so here's what I want to ask you. And you take this home, and you massage this this week, and you think about this week. But are you living your life of faith, expecting Him today? Let's pray.
Father, there, this subject of faith is vast and, and uh, beyond my comprehension and beyond the scope of what we can do in one message or even in a series of messages. And yet, we know that a Christian can only live a valid life if it's a life of faith. And so I would ask you to instill in us uh, uh, not simply intellectual but experiential faith. And so, Father, I would pray for those of us who believe that you would help us to live like it, to act like it, to prioritize like it, to invest ourselves like it. And, God, I would pray for those who don't yet believe that they would discover the only plausible, legitimate explanation for for the, the universe and, and for the wonder of your creation is a God in heaven that sent his son to die for us. And so God, speak into their life this morning. Have your way in their heart and we'll be careful to give you the glory. Father, we're going to receive our offering this morning and I pray that as our guys are coming to, uh, to take our offering that it should prepare our hearts and that we would give as an act of worship and, and we'd be able to, and you'd take what we bring so we could tell this story of faith, this story of Jesus, this story of, of, of explaining life uh, to those in our schools, to those in our community, to those in our neighborhoods and, and even all across the globe. So bless what we bring and bless those who give it as my prayer in Jesus' name.